He had some idiosyncrasies, which I'm sure you guys have heard about. One of them was the secret smoking. He was a secret smoker to people that he thought would judge him. I'd see him on the back porch smoking. Yeah, Michelle wouldn't let smoke in the house. He would smoke cigarettes in the men's room. Although I think Emil Jones says he mooched in those days. <laughs> we always had a bottle of Listerine along the way. You have me? Mm-hmm. Hello. Oh, I'm sorry, I was listening. Hi, nice to meet you, Colin. This is Jennifer. Jennifer, yes, hi. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you. Oh, this is lovely. Yeah. Betty Lou Saltzman lives in a spacious downtown apartment with floor-to-ceiling windows that overlook the Chicago River. Now Betty Lou and President Barack Obama go way back. It's right here. But look at how young he is. Wow. And look at me telling him what to do. (laughs) It says, uh, to Betty Lou, thanks for being there from the beginning. He had black hair then. Betty Lou Saltzman has been an activist in democratic politics for a long time. Her father served as Secretary of Commerce under President Carter. How many campaigns do you think you've been involved in? I couldn't possibly estimate the number (laughs) of campaigns, but... They've always been for more progressive candidates. Saltzman first met Barack Obama in 1992 when she was working to elect Bill Clinton. Back then, Obama came to the Clinton campaign to talk about voter registration, and he made a big impression on Betty Lou. Such an impression that she decided to introduce Obama to a friend of hers. Well, a woman named Betty Lou Saltzman, who's kind of a doyen of liberal politics here in Chicago, and a good friend of mine called me in 1992. I talked to my friend David Axelrod on a regular basis. And she said, I just met the most extraordinary young man, and I think you ought to meet him as well. And I said, I'm happy to meet anybody you want, Betty Lou, but why do you want me to meet him? And she said, "Uh, because I think he could be the first uh, African-American president of the United States. I showed David that... I felt this was going to happen. I always joke now when I go to the track, I take Betty Lou with me because she obviously knows how to spot winners. In 2008, David Axelrod would become chief strategist for Obama's presidential campaign. But 16 years before that, when Axelrod first met the 30-year-old Barack Obama, he didn't exactly see what Betty Lou saw. This was a guy who had been president of the Harvard Law Review, could have written his ticket at any law firm, and instead he came back to Chicago to run a voter registration drive. And, uh, well, I didn't uh, leave humming hail to the chief. He clearly was thinking about a career in public service. He was very impressed, but he didn't exactly go away whistling hail to the chief. (laughs) (laughs) And he says that now. He talks about it. But you did. And and I I really want to try to understand what it was was about him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just have a good sense of who people are. And I teased him a lot. I'd introduce him as the next president of the United States, just teasing. How would he react when you did that? He didn't mind. (laughs) (laughs) As far as we can tell, Betty Lou Saltzman is the first person to seriously say Barack Obama is going to be president. And she saw it way before the man who would later shape his presidential campaign, and perhaps even before Obama himself. At some point, he knew that he would be 
president, I, I do believe. I just, the fact that I saw that in him, I'm sure he saw it in himself. The possibility. Yeah. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Jen White, and this is Making Obama. This is our podcast that takes a deep dive into the early political years of Barack Obama and looks at the forces that helped to make the first African-American president of the United States. In this episode, Barack Obama sets his sights high. He was ambitious in things he wanted to do. And he said, I'm thinking about running for son. And we started laughing. And I saw it clearly. The most important person to convince was Michelle. He collects some impressive support. I felt he was a person of extraordinary potential. But he really didn't know the establishment within Chicago. Those ladies can open doors to a lot of people. And he figures out where he stands. I don't oppose war in all circumstances. And when I look out over this crowd today, I know there is no shortage of patriots or patriotism. Part 5. Up or Out. In the last episode, Barack Obama was at his lowest point. Yep, Barack's from Hyde Park. Is he a front for the powers that be? Obama made an ill-advised run for the U.S. Congress against an established politician with deep roots in Chicago. Obama's like, where are you? I said, well, we're gathering results, and we lost. (laughs) We didn't lose by a little. We lost by a lot. He started telling me about some of the numbers, like, oh, my God. You know, I got got beat down. Obama was defeated by Congressman Bobby Rush by a two-to-one margin. He did more than just defeat me. He spanked me. And by the end of the year 2000, Obama was really questioning whether or not he should continue in politics at all. I'm wasting my time. I could have been making this kind of money. I'm a lawyer. You know how you care for somebody so much and their passion has been extinguished? I met him when he was trying to figure out the inevitable question that all politicians ask themselves 24-7, which is, what next? (laughs) We wake up in the morning, what's next? (laughs) We go to sleep, what's next? Mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, was early in his career as a U.S. congressman for Illinois when he first met State Senator Barack Obama. You know, he had appetites and aspirations that were bigger than Springfield, which is normal. What were your earliest impressions of him? A really smart, nice guy who was ambitious. I know we're not supposed to... Ambitious is supposed to have a connotation of... uh, I don't have a negative connotation, not just because I'm also ambitious, but because you want somebody ambitious who wants to not only do something but leave a mark. And he was ambitious, not just for his career and running for higher office, ambitious in things he wanted to do. Obama knew that to get more done, he needed to explore other avenues that led to a higher office than state senator. I hope this doesn't get edited the wrong way. Because it's not what I mean when I say this, but I'll say it, is he was a person in a hurry, and I don't say that negatively. I mean, clearly neither one of us thought that, you know, our long-term plan was to stay down in Springfield for any great length of time. Tom Dart is now the sheriff of Cook County, but back then he was an Illinois House representative. 
He tried to help Obama in that 2000 congressional race, but after the loss, they both reluctantly returned to Springfield. Trust me, it wasn't like a blood pack, you know, where we both cut our fingers and said, we're both going to stay here as long as the other one now. Both Dart and Obama began looking for other opportunities. No, there was just a limited handful of positions that were of interest, and you can never really plot or plan when one of those may come open because of someone retiring, someone moving up, someone passing away, you know, Chicago, someone getting indicted. So that meant hunkering down in the state capitol and figuring out how to make Springfield work, at least for now. In Springfield, in, in state government, that's where decisions are made about public school financing. That's where all the criminal laws are written. Here's Obama uh, in 2002. All those programs are essentially run through the state level. And so I've been really encouraged by um, my capacity to influence policy at the state level. And I think uh, it's a wonderful place for people to, to uh, really make a big difference. Illinois Attorney General Lisa Madigan sat next to Obama in the Illinois Senate for several years. If you're somebody who is smart and willing to do the work, when you go to Springfield, there's an enormous amount of opportunity, and particularly for somebody who had a good relationship with leadership. Obama had developed a good relationship with the Illinois Senate leadership. And to understand the opportunities that came out of that, we called former Democratic Senate President Emil Jones. While you're waiting for him to pick up, this is what you hear. Emil Jones is often cited as one of the most important allies that Obama ever developed. When I became the leader back in 1993, there were very few African-Americans on staff. And I didn't like that. As the Democratic leader in the Illinois Senate, Jones recruited a number of young African-American and Latino staffers to come work at the state capitol. He became known as the Godfather. They came in my office one time, I was watching the movie Godfather. So they in turn began calling me Godfather. That's where it came from. It's not the Godfather that you think about. But a Godfather is someone who look out for the kids. I got a lot of godchildren, you know, they're all doing well. They still call me Godfather. <laughs> Even today, Obama and Jones keep in touch. When was the last time you spoke to Barack Obama? About, about three weeks ago, he called checking on me, see how I was doing. From the beginning of Obama's arrival in Springfield, he made it clear that he was there to work hard. And Emil Jones showed Obama the ropes. He learned. He learned. What did he learn? He learned that you cannot get all the things that you want. I told him this. You have to be aware of the people you have around you. You got to have somebody with a lot of political sense. Among other state senators, there was a sense that Jones was giving Obama special treatment. I read those accounts where they say I gave Brock special treatment. I gave him. No, Brock said I like to work hard. And if you want to work hard, that means you're going to be out there on various issues in the campaign. You're doing that. I didn't give him high-profile legislation. There was some in-house friction is, why does he get all the good bills? <laughs> you know. Former State Senator Donnie Trotter witnessed Emil Jones taking Obama under his wing. 
this guy gets all the bills. Well, you, and you start thinking on your personal thing. I have to get reelected. People got to know I'm doing something down here. So was there not jealousy, but it was certain to feel like, don't forget about me. It's getting that recognition. Some can call it petty, but at the same time, it's what gets us reelected. Beyond Obama's tension with his colleagues, favoritism or not, the Democrats were not in power and they could do little to forward their agenda. And in 2002, the Illinois state government was facing some major budget problems. We've got a difficult budget situation in Springfield. Here's Obama on public access television. Uh, We've got a huge cash flow problem in the state of Illinois. uh, And there are always different demands being made by different groups Mm -hmm. with respect to how the state uh, spends its money. With Illinois running short of money, the Republicans in charge of the Senate demanded cuts to social service programs. And of course, they didn't cut their stuff. They started cutting all the Democrat stuff. Former state senators Ricky Hendon and Barack Obama already had a strained relationship. And the Republican cuts put the two men into a direct conflict on the Senate floor. It all happened when Obama voted with the Republicans to close a child welfare facility in Hendon's Senate district. So when I asked him why did he vote to close my facility, he said, uh, well, you know, we got to be fiscally prudent. And I was like, fiscally prudent? What is that? But I went and sat down, and about 10 minutes later, they were closing a similar facility in his district. He got up and said, you got to be compassionate, and please don't close this facility. It's needed. And I got up behind him and said, I agree with, you know, my esteemed colleague from the South Side. I'm going to vote with him to keep his open. And I wish he had shown that same compassion when it was the West Side children. He, he didn't like that. Obama later claimed that he meant to vote in favor of keeping the West Side facility open. And after Hendon called him out, Obama stood up and said, quote, I would appreciate that next time my dear colleague, Senator Hendon, ask me about a vote before he names me on the floor. So he came over to my seat and told me that I embarrassed him on the Senate floor, and if I ever did it again, he kicked my ass. And I said, really? He said, yes, and if you come back here where the cameras can't see us, I'll do it right now. So I said, okay, let's go. So I went back where the, they, you know, give us a little cookie and the donuts and everything. You can make phone calls, and there were no cameras watching. And we had a little, um, you know, pushing and shoving. Men acting like kids. You've spoken to the good Senator Hendon. You're talking about a high-strung guy. (laughs) Former state senator Donnie Trotter was good friends with Ricky Hendon. And I was asked, could I be at least get in the middle uh, to be the the peacemaker between these two? And, uh, you know, just got between them and said, you know, we can't do this. Democratic leader Emil Jones. I had to pull him apart. I told Brock, I said, man, go, go sit down. Don't, don't let this get to you. This was one of those rare moments when Obama's anger and frustration actually bubbled to the surface. Springfield is a place of a lot of pressure uh, that people don't think about. It's not just sitting around and just hearing and voting for stuff. When people are under pressure, who knows what your pressure points are and things explode. But there were signs that change was coming to Springfield. You see, in September 2001, the Democrats literally got their name drawn out of a hat. 
After the 2000 national census, the Illinois state government needed to do some redistricting. And we just so happen to have a clip of Obama explaining redistricting on our station in 2001. How you draw lines will have a huge impact on the actual outcomes in terms of who's elected. Now, that's true whether you have a partisan gerrymander, meaning Republicans and Democrats are going at it trying to draw lines to their advantage, Now, the Illinois Constitution states that if a bipartisan commission cannot agree on a new map, then there is a unique system for choosing someone to act as a tiebreaker. Two names, one Democratic and one Republican, are put into different envelopes, which are placed in a stovepipe hat like the one worn by President Lincoln. And on September 5th, 2001, the Democratic name was drawn from that hat. To the victors go the spoils. That's the philosophy behind the legislative remapping process here in Illinois. And this time, the victors are the Democrats. Well, it means that the the balance has tipped us very favorably toward the Democrats. Obama sees a big blue wave coming, and with it, an opportunity. So, he makes his move. Obama seeks the counsel of Springfield's godfather, the man who would become the new Senate president, Emil Jones. One day he came to see me and he said, man, you got a lot of power now. I said, what kind of power do you think I have? He said, you have the power to make a United States senator. And uh, it was startling to me, you know. And we kept talking. I said, do you know of anybody I can make? (laughs) And Brock said, me. (laughs) So I said, let's go for it. So that's what happened. And I saw it clearly. This was one of those things where I just uh, had a a good instinct. I use the analogy of uh, football where you could see a hole opening up in the line. And if, if I could get to that hole and, and get through it, um, that there'd be a lot of open field uh, on the other side. Coming up on Making Obama, the state senator has a lot more people to convince. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. By 2002, Obama is actively plotting a run for the U.S. Senate. This is coming on the heels of his spectacular loss to Bobby Rush for Congress. While these are both national offices, there's a key difference in the voters you're appealing to. To win the congressional seat, Obama needed the support of voters from just one district on the south side of Chicago. To win the Senate seat, he needed support from across the entire state. Now, Obama had started making downstate connections when he first arrived in Springfield in 1997. I said, you know what? You should really go see what it's like in southern Illinois and in these other parts of the state because, you know, you're voting on all of Illinois. Obama and his legislative aide, Dan Showman, took a little road trip to southern Illinois. This was Dan and Barack's first time traveling together. 
but over the years, they ended up spending a lot of time together on the road. We really got along well. I was probably just spent the most time in the car with him for about a six or eight year period. All those crazy trips we took that he would moan and complain about really built the basis of his uh, ability to work with folks. On those long rides, Dan and Barack smoked cigarettes and got to know each other. I would listen to sports radio 24-7 to keep myself awake, and he would say, no one listens to sports radio like you do. And I said, actually, Barack, most people in our demographic, guys our age, they listen to sports radio just as much as I do. I said, they don't listen to Enya like you do. Where we were in southern Illinois is a lot closer to Little Rock than it is to Chicago. On that road trip, Showman and Obama played a little golf. It was like 100 degrees when we were playing golf in Carbondale. And he had uh, a silk shirt on. And I said, you can't wear that shirt. And he said, but I only have one golf shirt and it's dirty. I wore it yesterday. I said, then you have to wear it again. I said, you can't wear a silk shirt in southern Illinois when it's 100 degrees playing golf. What signal would wearing a silk shirt in 100 degree weather in Carbondale have sent? I said, you look uptown. And he goes, what does that mean? I said, uptown. I said, this doesn't look like you belong here. And I just said, nobody has those down here. They don't sell those at Big R. He always used to say that his father was from Kenya, where he got his name, and his mother was from Kansas, where he got his accent. But I don't think he spent much time in Kansas. But this was a really good cultural experience for him. If you're going to succeed in politics, it's all about meeting people where they are. And on that road trip with Dan, Obama met a lot of people in southern Illinois. I mean, they didn't know who he was. They had no idea why he was there, but they were very accepting and very friendly. So how do you think that trip transformed the way he approached politics in Illinois? He saw that he could get support on issues from folks that had nothing in common with him at all. I mean, they didn't have a single thing in common with him. It was a cultural experience for him that I think really opened his eyes and said, hey, you know what, I I bet I can get these folks to vote for me. I remember the day he told me he was going to run for Senate. In 2002, Obama ran into his good friend, Marty Nesbitt. So I was was out cutting the grass or raking the leaves or something, (laughs) and he was driving by. And he hasn't done that in a long time, but he had this old Jeep Cherokee and he was driving down the street. He saw me, stopped, he pulled over, and he said, I want to tell you what I'm thinking about doing. And so I said, okay, I put my rake down, we went in the house, he sat down. One of our other neighbors came over, Jim Reynolds, who was also a good friend and very supportive. And we said, well, what are you thinking about doing? What are you doing next? You know, he goes, lost to Bobby Rush. And he said, yeah, um, I'm thinking about running for Sunt. And I looked at Jim Reynolds and I looked at him, and we started laughing. We laughed, you laughed. And laughed, and we laughed, and he's like, well, you just lost to Bobby Rush. <laughs> we laughed, laughed. And uh, he let us laugh, and he chuckled along with us. Obama's idea about running for the U.S. Senate began spreading among his other friends. I recall when I first heard from Mrs. Obama that he was thinking about the U.S. Senate race, I thought, well, that's ill-advised close friend of the Obamas, Valerie Jarrett, shared some of her concerns with Michelle. If he runs for the Senate so soon after losing the congressional seat, then his political career really will be over if he has two losses back to back. So I thought it was too soon. And she agreed. And the two of us collaborated to have a brunch at my home with some of Barack Obama's closest friends 
to talk through how we could talk him out of this ill-advised idea. So it was a bit of an intervention? It was an intervention, exactly. How did you convince not just yourself, but the people around you that running for that office was a good idea? Well, you'll have to ask them why they were convinced. (laughs) I, I know what my theory of the case was. I looked at this race and I thought it was a realistic uh, shot, in part for if, in fact, I was in a statewide race, not running against an African-American incumbent, that I thought I could get a very strong African-American vote, which obviously in a Democratic primary made a big difference. I felt that I could reach out to progressive white voters uh, and Latino voters. I had traveled statewide to visit uh, my colleagues in the state Senate, and you know, I'd gone down state and I'd talked to people and looked around and I figured, you know, I can talk to these folks. I, it may seem like I'm a Chicago lawyer from the South Side with a funny name, but when I got down there, I, uh, I could connect. So, so I, I had a feeling that it would be possible, not necessarily probable, but possible for me to, to win this race. And, and so what I did was talk to friends and supporters and people who had been there before. And, and I said to them, here's, here's the game plan. I can't guarantee you that it's going to work, but here's why I think it can work. But he thought it through. He knew that one thing missing in his congressional race is he didn't really have a strong political supporter. And this time, Senator Emil Jones had already committed to him that he would endorse him. And he said that was a huge difference. And in the space of about two and a half hours, we all went from don't do this to what a great idea. And I remember the inflection point for me was when I said to him, I implored him, I said, look, you have such a promising political career. Just wait a little longer, have a little bit of a cushion since your loss against Congressman Rush. And I'm afraid that if you run now and you lose, it's all over. And he looked at me and he said, if I'm not afraid, why are you? The most important person to convince was Michelle, who had never been wild about me being in politics in the first place. And we had made a lot of sacrifices for me once we had young kids. It was an enormous burden on her. She was still working. You know, there was a real question as to whether this path that I'd taken in politics uh, made sense to continue. She had a lot on her plate and and having a full-time job at the time, too. And so the demands of public service were weighing on not just him, but on her as well. I persuaded her, based on the idea, a sincere one, that it didn't make sense for me to stay in the state legislature uh, in perpetuity, that this would be an up-or-out strategy. How clear was it from Mrs. Obama that this was the last shot. This was the last race he was going to be able to run. Crystal clear. So Obama has his inner circle on board. He has the support of Emil Jones and relationships with people downstate. But he also has some new constituents. This is a redistricting year across Illinois and here in Chicago. And so my district boundaries have changed, and I'll mostly have the lakefront all the Obama way. Obama on public access in 2002. My new district will be having some of the wealthiest communities in the state as well as some of the poorest communities in the state. And so, you know, it's a real mix, which I think is an interesting district to represent. Obama actually had a hand in redrawing his district. 
He held on to his political base in Hyde Park, but the new district stretched north into downtown Chicago. That meant he'd be representing a new segment of more affluent voters. Using the resources of the company, we did fundraisers in L.A. for Harold Washington and Jerry Brown. How would you describe Playboy's politics? I would say avowedly liberal. Christy Hefner is the former CEO of Playboy Enterprises and the daughter of Hugh Hefner. She supported Barack Obama early in his U.S. Senate campaign. How were you first introduced to him? Through Betty Lou Saltzman. He was running for the Senate, but he wasn't being obvious about it. In the spring of 2002, Obama's old friend Betty Lou Saltzman brought him to a group that she and Christy Hefner both belonged to. I mean, the group is quite influential. I was one of a small group of women that started meeting about once a month. And this is the ladies who lunch? And this is the ladies who lunch. The ladies who lunch has an ironic title. They're not the kind of ladies who lunch you might think. They're not the ladies drinking tea with their gloves on and talking about their next shopping at sex. They're very powerful, connected, intelligent women who uh, spend a lot of time thinking about politics. Chicago journalist Laura Washington is a recently added member of the Ladies Who Lunch. I don't know why I became a member, because I don't have any money. I'm not connected to money, but it's an incredible opportunity, especially for a journalist. What they do is they basically have these periodic lunches where they invite people to come in and speak and chat about politics. And a lot of young and -and up-and-coming politicians, before they're on the map, come and speak to the ladies because there's a lot of money there in terms of donors and there's also a lot of connections there. Those ladies can open doors to a lot of people and Barack Obama found that when he met with them. Christy Hefner. While I did raise money for him, I never was the kind of bundler that raises the biggest dollars because the people who raise the biggest dollars are the people who can write the biggest checks and that isn't me. I think I was a very helpful connector for him early on. Obama had connections to a number of wealthy Chicagoans. But to successfully run a campaign for the U.S. Senate, he knew from the very beginning that he needed some serious money. He said, uh, here are the things that need to happen for me to win. Obama's close friend, Marty Nesbitt. If you help me raise $5 million, I will have a 50% chance of winning. You help me raise seven and a half million dollars, I'll have a 75% chance of winning. And he said, if, if we can raise $10 million, I will guarantee you I will win. As it turns out, Marty knew someone who he was in business with who might be able to help. She was one of the uh, early people that we talked to. Marty ended up coming to work for me at Pritzker Realty Group. Penny Pritzker is a billionaire businesswoman who comes from one of the wealthiest families in America. She would later become Secretary of Commerce in the Obama administration. And just to mention, WBEZ receives support from philanthropic foundations associated with the Pritzkers, and Penny's husband, Brian Traubert, serves on our board. Now, back in the summer of 2002, Marty Nesbitt approached Penny Pritzker on Obama's behalf. I came to work one day and I said, you know, Penny, my... uh my buddy is, I think, going to run for a Senate. She's like, oh, Marty, I don't know if he's ready. There's so many other people out there. And I said, Penny, sit down with him, have a conversation. 
So Penny Pritzker and her husband invited the Obamas to their lake house in Michigan. It's a place where you go. It's not totally isolated, but it's a place where there's not a lot of distraction. You hang out for the weekend, you know, on the beach. In the Pritzker's living room, Obama made his big pitch. And I will never forget that. He said, I'd really like your support. And my husband and I really thought he had an infinitesimal chance of winning. We said, we'll think about it. And Brian and I, as we often do, take a problem out on a run. And we were talking to each other about the fact that we really respected his convictions about bringing people together. And he was just the kind of person you'd like to see in the Senate. But we also said that we don't think he really has a chance. But, you know, so what? This is the kind of person Brian and I felt we should be supporting. She came back the Monday after that weekend, and she said, We're in. We're (laughs) in. We're so impressed. And they held one of the early fundraisers. In life, you know, the opportunity to open a door... For someone you believe in, it's it's a privilege to be able to do that. For the campaign, it was a coup. Beyond downtown donors, Obama was working to solidify support from political heavyweights on the South Side. There were maybe 50 of us there, including Reverend Jackson. Magazine editor Hermine Hartman remembers one party in particular. Barack gave his... First, I'm thinking I'm going to run speech. Obama later called Hartman to ask how she thought he did. I was like, I don't think he did well. And he was like, really? And I said, no. I said, you sound like you're running for dog catcher. (laughs) It wasn't broad enough. It wasn't national. And it definitely was not international. It wasn't big enough. If you're going to run for national office, you got to be that. You got to talk national issues. I said, Jesse knows this stuff. Hartman set up a meeting between Obama and Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. at the Southside headquarters of Rainbow Push. That's Jackson's social justice organization. Now, Reverend Jackson had run for president of the United States twice in the 80s. And I said, Jesse, I think you need to help him with international discussion. I I can't take credit for his speaking gifts. He had the right eloquence. He had the passion. He had knowledge, and you speak with passion and knowledge. You have the authenticity. Every Saturday morning, we have a meeting here since 1966. 10 o'clock a.m. live radio and television broadcast. It'll be on this coming Saturday morning. Please come by. Thank you very much. Amen. Hit it. Obama was invited to regularly speak on the stage at Rainbow Push. It's a place where aspiring politicians and some presidential hopefuls address the predominantly African-American audience. And it gave Obama a unique platform to both hone his speaking style and refine his ability to discuss issues beyond the state of Illinois. He would come here and speak at the broadcast to a large audience. That's how he became known to many people. And they finally worked out Barack Hussein Obama. They finally got his, his name down. Obama grew close to former Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. He and Jesse Jr. were very close friends. They would speak together and go out to lunch together. And what were they talking about during these meetings? Both Jesse Jr. and Barack were very much into public policy. Then, sort banking, insurance, education, 
health care international fast. Later in the Senate campaign, Jesse Jackson Jr. gave Obama a much-needed endorsement, and the two men appeared in billboards together throughout the South Side. The work that we have done opened up a lot of doors. I don't want to be presumptuous about any particular role I played. I was blessed to know him. So I've been able to watch him grow. So, Obama's got connections downtown through the ladies who lunch, financial support through the Pritzker family, and some real Southside credibility through the Jacksons. It's time to assemble the team. So we decided to put the pieces together to start the race. Dan Showman, the campaign manager for the failed congressional race, became the campaign manager again. We had some of the apparatus from the last race already ready. A lot of the same people that worked in in 2000, they were ready and raring to go. And another familiar face jumped in. I am the guy for some people. I am their knight in shiny armor. And for others, I am their worst nightmare. Al Kendall worked on securing the black vote. In my mind, Barack would not win without me because no one was going to work as hard. And there was some new blood. Been in the business for a long time. We've won a bunch of awards. More importantly, we won a lot of races. Veteran Chicago political consultant Pete Giangreco signed on to the Obama campaign. We were kind of there from the beginning. And Obama finally landed the big one. I was depressed about the state of our politics, and Barack called and said he was thinking of making this race for the Senate. David Axelrod had declined to help Obama in his race against Bobby Rush, but the Senate was a different story. I really thought there was a path for him if certain things fell his way. And I told my wife, uh, Susan, that if uh, I could help Barack get elected to the U.S. Senate, that would be something that could recharge my batteries. There were no African-Americans in the Senate at that time. In the early 2000s, out of 100 senators from the 50 states, not one of them was African-American. And for the team, that fact added another dimension to Obama's candidacy. They quietly began building the Senate campaign. Pete Gian Greco. You know, as a political consultant, at first you just want to make enough money to make and meet and pay the bills. And after you win a few races and you feel like you get established, there's kind of this quest for the Holy Grail. And that Holy Grail was, was, was Barack Obama. He was the one you'd been looking for your whole career. Many of us knew that if we can elect the U.S. Senate, then there was a possibility for more. And it was a way of delivering the message to both the machine and to the world that we can make a difference. There was, a, you know, a freshness and a newness and an about-timeness about a person of color who was ready to kind of galvanize uh, where people wanted to take the country. There was a dimension of, of dream, like, like, if he wins, like, anything's possible. You seem like you're, like, this makes you a bit emotional. It, it does. It's a, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, you know. It's the kind of kid thing you tell your grand, grandkids about, you know. The Senate seat that Obama was aiming for was held by Republican Peter Fitzgerald. But Fitzgerald wasn't popular in his own party, and there were whispers that he wasn't going to run again. Even if he did, the Obama team had some polls commissioned that showed Obama easily beating Fitzgerald in a one-on-one race. By the way, I should mention, and you should know, that I said I felt he could get elected to the Senate if certain things 
happened in his favor. One of them would have to have been that Carol Mosley Braun didn't decide to run for the seat again. Carol Mosley Braun served as U.S. Senator for Illinois from 1993 to 1999 until Republican Peter Fitzgerald defeated her. She was the first female African-American U.S. Senator in history. And in 2002, Braun was eyeing her old seat. She was actively considering running for it again, and she was being very cagey when Obama called her about that. If Braun entered the race, Obama's chances of winning the Democratic primary would shrink significantly. She and Obama would have split the black vote. She was an enormous sort of truck blocking the highway. Was she going to run and come back for another comeback? Coming up on Making Obama, a war, a speech, and a shift in power. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life... Our very freedom came under attack. It is now my honor to sign into law the USA Patriot Act of 2001. As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. There is no doubt Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. To tell Saddam Hussein that it is time to offer up his weapons of mass destruction so that... States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. In September 2002, the Bush administration called on Congress to pass a resolution. It would authorize military action against Saddam Hussein's regime. That resolution would thrust America into a war in Iraq. I had been out to dinner with some friends, and we were talking about how horrible the idea of going to war in Iraq was and how concerned we were about it. Obama's friend and early supporter, Betty Lou Saltzman, called up Marilyn Katz. Katz is a Chicago PR consultant. She got started in politics organizing protests against the Vietnam War. Betty Lou called me on Sunday morning. I said, we have to do something about this war. I thought, actually, she's right, and nobody else is going to do it. About 15 of us met in the Salton's beautiful apartment we decided that we would call a demonstration at Federal Plaza. Everybody took assignments. Somebody got the Federal Plaza. Marilyn got Jesse Jackson. I got the religious people and Barack Obama. I tried to get in touch with him on the weekend before the rally. He was downstate campaigning quietly. 
and he came back and let me know that he was gonna speak at the rally, which is on Tuesday, let me know on Monday. <laughs> All we are saying We were the first city to have a demonstration of any size. In the middle of downtown Chicago, a crowd watched some local politicians and activists give their speeches. Reverend Jackson was the marquee speaker. The press coverage was all Jesse Jackson. Choose peace over war. Choose negotiation over confrontation. Choose minds over missiles. State legislators weren't really expected to have much of a position on foreign policy, and Barack Obama was the only state senator there. Nobody knew who this guy was. He was only a state senator. Obama spoke for maybe five or ten minutes. He was largely ignored by the news cameras, and this was before people recorded everything with their smartphones. So a grand total of 14 seconds of audio exists of that now famous speech. And here it is. I don't oppose war in all circumstances. And when I look out over this crowd today, I know there is no shortage of patriots or patriotism. What I do oppose is a dumb war. Betty Lou Saltzman. It was awesome. It was just amazing. And he was holding the notes in his hand. He did not use them. Now, I'd never heard him speak one twit on anything international, but it was really clear that he had thought deeply about it. Marilyn Katz. He was speaking to a tremendously political, anti-war, anti-imperialist crowd, and he did not pander. He didn't say, I'm with you. He said, I'm not against war. I'm against stupid wars. I'm against wars that are built on lies, despite the fact that the crowd was further to the left than he, they cheered him wildly. When do you think he formed his opinion on the war? Um, I think as it was happening in those weeks, I mean, I think he was testing out with David Axelrod. I think he drew on the same principles that have driven his life in terms of constitution, in terms of social justice, and a deep mistrust of bullshit. I remember talking with David Axelrod about the speech and saying, gee, did, did he really have to call it a dumb war? What I do oppose is a dumb war. That's kind of harsh. Before Obama gave that speech, he talked to the people working on his campaign about the risk of coming out against the Iraq war. Political consultant Pete Giangreco. You have to remember at the time, 60, 70 percent of Americans supported the war. It was very popular going in. There was no way to know how the anti-war position would play out later in the race. And Gian Greco explained the reasons why it might not be a good idea for Obama to take that stance. There are particular people on the southwest side, northwest side, suburbs, downstate, who culturally are these sort of World War II generation, sort of very patriotic and proud folks. And even some people from, you know, Vietnam era were like, you know, hey, we got to stand up. So I kind of laid out the conventional wisdom why he should not take the position. But Brock saw it for what it was. He said, no, this is the way I really feel. And it was obviously in a Democratic primary for the Senate. There was an advantage to being the lone voice. Most of his friends and advisors discouraged him from giving that speech. Obama's former media consultant, Chris Souter. He understood that if he wanted to establish loyalty from progressives in Chicago and throughout Illinois, he had to be against the war. I think he began to realize that you have to figure things out before you run, if you're going to win. 
Obama's anti-Iraq war stance was a gamble. In 2002, nobody knew how long the war in Iraq would last or just how dramatically public opinion would shift against it. And nobody knew that when you came out against the war would be such an issue in the 2008 presidential primary. Senator Hillary Clinton voted in favor of the resolution that first authorized military action in Iraq. She later called that position a mistake. But Obama would repeatedly emphasize that he came out publicly against the war nine days before that vote, even though he was just a state senator. The woman who first asked Obama to speak at the rally, Betty Lou Saltzman. He spoke what he felt. Some make the argument that he was making a speech that would serve him well in his future political aims, something that he could point back to and say... I said very early on I was against this war. Was it your sense that he was making a political stance or a principled stance? Why couldn't it be both? A month after Obama gave that speech in 2002, there was another big event in November that further helped Obama build his record. The Democrats have their way in Illinois while Republicans are left licking their wounds. Illinois Democrats got control of the House and the Senate. Here's Obama on PBS station WTTW after that election. Well, first of all, I think uh, it was a terrific victory for Democrats, and I think uh, a lot of it uh, is attributable to a terrific campaign run by Rod Blagojevich. They put together a clear message. They ran a disciplined campaign. After decades of Republican governors, Illinois elected Democrat Rod Blagojevich. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank the people of Illinois for their belief that in this great state, at this challenging time, we can build a better life. Today, Blagojevich is serving a 14-year prison sentence on corruption charges. But at the time, with Governor Blagojevich in charge, Illinois Democrats could finally advance their agenda. And State Senator Obama could finally head up legislation that would actually pass. 2003 became a productive year. In the eventual U.S. Senate race, State Senator Obama was able to flaunt his record and highlight some legislative accomplishments. I want to provide those families a voice. And that's what I've been doing down in Springfield for the last seven years. Senate President Emil Jones appointed Obama to be the chairman of the Health and Human Services Committee. I'm proud to have led the fight to provide health care to 20,000 more children this year that didn't have it last year, 65,000 more working families. Obama led efforts in criminal justice reform. I'm proud to have passed racial profiling legislation at the state level. We need it at the federal level. And videotaping of interrogations and confessions to make sure that our capital justice system is in fact just. Thanks to that Democratic wave in 2002, Obama had a lot more to run on. I have a track record of delivering on those issues. Thank you very much. As far as I was concerned, he had a okay record. Chicago political consultant Delmarie Cobb says there's a unique practice in Springfield. Rather than offering a simple choice of yay or nay, Illinois is one of a handful of state legislatures that has a third option. There are three buttons when you're in Springfield. There's a green button for yes, there's a red button for no, and there's a yellow button for present. 
and it's yellow for a reason. What, what's that reason? Well, you're not committal. The yellow line is in the middle of the road. You're straddling the road. In the seven years that Barack Obama was in Springfield, he pressed the present button over 100 times. To be precise, it was 129 times. And that part of Obama's record in Springfield became something that rivals would point to with this criticism. So you either have the convictions of your beliefs or you don't. I believe people sent us down that vote, yes or no. Former state senator Ricky Hendon. They don't send us down there to hide. They sent us down there to decide. Do you remember from your record how many times you used the yellow button? Oh, Lord, maybe twice in my entire career. No more than five times. Well, actually, I think most of the times that he voted president, it was a philosophical issue. Obama's legislative aide and campaign manager, Dan Showman. Unfortunately, sometimes he didn't think about the politics of why he did things. So it looked like he was equivocating when usually he had a very, what he thought was a cogent argument for why he did it. But to the general public, it looked questionable. The president button was about not making voting mistakes that were going to come back to haunt him. Chicago journalist Laura Washington. He was always very calculated in everything he did. He made a few mistakes along the way, but very strategic. The Obama campaign knew that the field in the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate would be crowded, but they were strategically waiting to see if one person in particular was going to enter the race. Then there was a welcome surprise. And I appreciate your coming out. Thank you again for ignoring the weather to come out today. In early 2003, former Senator Carol Mosley Braun announced that she would not run for her old Senate seat. Her sights were set much higher. Next week, I will begin to form an exploratory committee to seek the Democratic Party nomination for the president for the presidency of the United States of America. David Axelrod. History would have changed if Carol had decided to run for the Senate again because uh, we all knew and Obama knew that he couldn't win if she were in the race and he probably wouldn't have run. Uh, Senator, had Carol Mosley Braun decided to run, would you have stayed out of the race? I think I would have. Obama on PBS station WTTW in early 2003. It would have been difficult uh, for me, I think, uh, both uh, just from a pure political uh, perspective, but also uh, in terms of uh, what we both represent for me to uh, run against her. Uh, Obviously, I have not run statewide before, and what that means is that we're going to have to do a lot of work. Uh, As someone who's uh, running for state office for the first time, does it help that there was a governor named Rod Blagojevich, if your name is Barack Obama, in terms of... of, uh... Rod's a trailblazer and a hero (laughs) of mine. Uh, 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 You know, obviously, Barack Obama is is an unusual name. My father was from Kenya, uh, which is where I got the name from. Uh, And your mother was from Kansas. My mother was from Kansas. That's where I got my accent from. Just a few years after his epic loss to Congressman Bobby Rush, Obama was able to persuade some new key allies to support him. And when he made the formal announcement that he was running for the U.S. Senate, they were all there. Emil Jones being a particular critical component of this. At this point, he was the Senate president, one of the three or four most powerful Democrats in the state. With his support, you now had the sorts of institutional support that I had not had in previous races. I had a bunch of downstate colleagues, unlikely on paper to support me, but because they knew me, thought that I could get votes in their counties. You had Jesse Jr., who I asked, and he said, this is not 
uh, a race that I think I can win, uh, and wholeheartedly endorsed me. And so overall, you had, uh, I think, a, a strong enough base of support that I was credible. And uh, it worked out. Next time on Making Obama, it works out. I have spoken glowingly of Barack, right? But we all have to admit, luck had a little bit to do with it, too, right? Obama thinks big. And he says, I want you to call Oprah. He gives a speech. He's looking down at me, and he's like, are you trying to tell me that I have to take out one of my favorite lines in the speech? And really what it was, more than anything, was a distillation of themes that I had been thinking about and developing since I had first come to Chicago and started organizing. And everything changes. But I knew that day when I heard that speech, I was like, you get ready to be president of the United States. Making Obama is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jen White. The producer is Colin McNulty. The executive producer is Brendan Banizak, with editing help from Kevin Dawson of Whistledown Productions. Really special thanks to James Edwards, Joe Dassault, Candace Mattel-Khan, Kate Cahan, Dave McKinney, B. Aldridge, and our intern, Stefania Gomez. Our digital editor is Trisha Bobita. And thanks to everyone who's chipped in to support WBEZ and our future podcasts. You can join them by going to wbez.org slash making.